0: Good morning, Grace Point. We are so glad you're here. It's so good to see you, especially if you're joining us for the very first time. Um, Whenever you're watching this, wherever you are in the world, we want you to feel welcome, and we hope this gathering has been helpful and and you found it meaningful. Um, We're going to continue our journey through the season of Advent today. Advent is the beginning of the new year uh, for the Christian calendar, and the third week of Advent means that Christians all over the world today are going to be centering and talking about the theme Of joy and and talking about joy in 2020 uh, it it might feel uh, a little off or a little out of place Uh, the reality is that for lots and lots of people uh, that talking about joy at any point at Christmas during the holiday season can feel a little off and a little out of place I'm I'm reminded of one of my favorite Christmas movies if not my favorite Christmas movie um, and that would be National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation heartwarming story Uh, And in this movie, um, the daughter is complaining to the the mom character, Ellen, uh, that she's having to share a room with her brother while the grandparents are visiting. And they're cooking dinner, and Ellen, the mom, responds with this line. It always pops in my head this time of year. I don't know what to say, except it's Christmas and we're all in misery. Um, I I don't know. That that sort of almost feels like peak 2020 vibes (laughs) there. So I just want to say on the front end, as we get ready to talk about joy, Um, I want to tell you what we won't be talking about. We won't be talking about joy as a kind of fake it till you make it phony happiness, right? We We won't be talking about joy as a way of suppressing or avoiding the negative or painful realities of life. I actually think there are ways of understanding joy and approaching joy that are eyes wide open, that aren't ignoring or minimizing the pain, the tragedy, the suffering, and the grief of the world, but instead recognizing them. And I think we can also still insist, even though all those things exist, we can still insist that joy is real, possible, and accessible. And so before we jump into that conversation, I think it's important for us to just think about the context that these Christmas stories in Matthew and Luke are told in. It's important because I think we have images that um, of sort of this this idea of Christmas and the, the first Christmas. We have these images in our brains, I think, that are reinforced by nativity scenes and Christmas carols and uh, at, at Christmas plays. Um, and I think that the image we end up with is sort of idealized or sanitized. You know, it's sort of this image on a, on a silent night, all was calm and bright and away in a manger. The Christ child was born and all the faithful came. And there was even a guy playing drums. And there's sort of this in, in our cartoons, in our plays, in our nativity scenes, in our carols and all of those places it sort of reinforces this calm, safe, neat, clean, tidy experience that actually, and look, I'll say this, I love so many of those songs and carols. I have sentimental attachment to them. But I think the situation on the ground was anything but calm and anything but bright. To just give you sort of an understanding of the world when Jesus was born, Jesus was born into a peasant family and an oppressed people. Around the time of Jesus' birth, so in the year 4 B.C. and the B.C.E., and the reason scholars tend to date Jesus' birth to 6 or 4 B.C.E. is because the gospel writers seem to insist that Jesus was born before King Herod died, known as Herod the Great in history. And Herod died in the year 4 B.C.E. And so sometime around there, at the death of Herod in 4 B.C.E., there was a rebellion by a group of Jews in a town called Sepphoris, that was located about four miles from Nazareth, which was Jesus's hometown. Now, to give this perspective, it's almost, you'd have to think that trade workers, and Nazareth was, a, at this point, a very small little community that really wouldn't have even been put on the map, right? Sepphoris was this big city four miles away. And so it, it leads you to think, and, and most scholars would say, that tradesmen, uh, people who were, were like, engaged in craft, stonemasons, carpenters, all those, like those sorts of folks would travel to the city, especially when it was getting its facelift under Herod, that they would have been part of going to that city and engaging, and and that's where they would earn their living. And and so this rebellion happens in 4 BCE, and uh, it's crushed by a Roman general from Syria named Varus. So uh, the empire sends him down to, to squash this rebellion. And when he does... Um, what we find out from uh, people like Josephus, who is a, a Jewish historian who ended up aligning with the Romans, um, what you know about this from Josephus is that somewhere around 2,000 Jews were crucified in this rebellion. So four miles from where Jesus was, would have been a, a tiny baby at this point, four miles from there, 2,000 of his fellow countrymen are being uh, executed on a Roman cross. It, it's very likely that Jesus, as he grew up, he would have known people who had experienced deep losses. Maybe his own family experienced deep losses in the revolt at suffered And I share this to just give you this image. Jesus did not have an easy life. He was not born into a stable situation. He was born into oppression. He was born um, in so many ways with, with the world stacked against he and his family. So when we come to Luke chapter 2, which is some, where my favorite telling of the story is. When we get to Luke chapter two, this is the backdrop. This is the context in which Jesus was born. And we're gonna pick this story up a little farther in. We're gonna pick it up um, after Jesus has been born and then these uh, the, in Bethlehem, and these the skies explode with celebration. Luke chapter two, beginning in verse eight. Nearby shepherds were living in the fields, guarding their sheep at night. The Lord's angel stood before them, the Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said, don't be afraid. Look, I bring good news to you. Wonderful, joyous news for all people. Your savior is born today in David's city. He is Christ the Lord. This is a sign for you. You will find a newborn baby wrapped snugly and lying in a manger. The skies explode and they're celebrating a newborn king. And where's the newborn king going to be located? Not in a palace not in the halls of power, not in the halls of wealth. He's going to be found wearing a Snuggie. Uh, I remember when when we were swaddled, not a Snuggie, a swaddle. Snuggie's a whole different thing. I remember the first, when we brought um, our firstborn home from the hospital and just trying to figure out that whole swaddle thing. Um, And it just gives you that image that this is a brand new newborn Jesus. He's all swaddled up but you won't find him in the halls of power and wealth. You'll find him in a manger, in a feeding trough. Um, It's it's such a powerful reminder of the world that Jesus was entering. The announcement of the birth of the Christ child is called Good News of Great Joy, and it's for everyone. It's non-discriminating. Every single person can experience the joy of this good news. Not because everybody will line up under the religion that gets started around this baby after he grew up, but because if people take this gospel news, and the word, by the way, gospel is the word in Greek, euangelion, and it means literally good message. We translate it as good news, or we we translate it into English too as gospel, right? So everybody benefits from this good news because whether or not they line up under the religion that would be started around this baby once he grew up if people were taking his teaching seriously, if they were loving neighbor and loving enemy, then the world is going to be a better place. Now, the term gospel actually didn't start out as a religious, well, it was a religious term. It wasn't a Christian term. The the word gospel uh, essentially was born out of the practice of of the Roman emperors, beginning with Caesar Augustus. Gospel was an announcement uh, about how the Caesar had brought peace and defeated their enemies and had brought stability to the empire, right? So if you were going to hear about a gospel in the ancient world, you'd be hearing good news about Caesar and all that Caesar has done to transform the world. And of course, because there was an emperor cult because they ended lots of people around the empire ended up worshiping Caesar as a God. It takes on a religious connotation too. Um, But what's interesting is that when the, when the first Christians begin to tell their Jesus story and they do this all over the place with other words, like, the, the word Lord in the Roman Empire, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians come along and say, no, 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 Jesus is Lord, right? It's subversive. It's anti-imperial. Um, and so with the word gospel, when, they, when Jesus enters the world, not in Caesar's palace, and not even not the one in Vegas, but the one in, in, in uh, Rome, um, when Jesus enters the world, not in the trappings of wealth, not with power and a silver spoon, when he enters the world, in a stable, in a manger, it's announced as good news for the world. This is a subversive challenge to the empire. Within this context, how can these angels announce such an undiscriminating joy? How is it possible in the context of Roman-occupied Palestine in the first century that they can announce good news for everyone? We might also ask how this kind of joy is even possible in 2020, while we're languishing in a worsening global health crisis, but it's not just a physical health crisis, is it? I mean, we, we're developing all sorts of other things that have come along with this. We have, we're having a mental health crisis, we're having an economic crisis, we're having a crisis relationally with other human beings throughout this election season, and pretty much every area of our existence has been pressed and and and, and brought under stress. How can we talk about joy? So today, I'm going to talk about joy. And I'm going to focus on three things. Focus on joy and guilt. I want to focus on joy and fear. I want to focus on joy and grief. Let's begin with joy and guilt. There's a real tension that exists when it comes to talking and thinking about joy in the middle of a pandemic, when at the time of the recording this, this sermon, my last numbers were that we were um, almost at or just north of 16 million cases and just under, but maybe over by now 300,000 deaths because of COVID-19. Feeling joy in that sort of context can feel a little uncaring or callous or, or inappropriate. But I would argue that the current context, a global health crisis, an economic crisis, a climate crisis, a justice crisis, makes creating room for joy all the more important, urgent, and essential. Instead of feeling guilt for experiencing joy, what if we embraced it as a gift? What if we embraced it with gratitude? Right? Because th- there are moments in the biblical tradition that give us a window into this, embracing joy even in a difficult context. One of the first that comes to my mind and one of my favorites is uh, from the mother of Jesus, Mary. She sings a song when she finds out she's going to be pregnant with the Christ child. And it's known in, as the Magnificat, which is, are the first couple words in Latin. But here's, here's this song she sings, to celebrate this news. Mary said, Luke 2, Mary said, I'm sorry, Luke 1. Mary said, my soul proclaims your greatness, O God, and my spirit rejoices in you, my Savior. For you have looked with favor upon your lowly servant, and from this day forward, all generations will call me blessed. For you, the Almighty, have done great things for me, and holy is your name. Your mercy reaches from age to age to those who fear you. Uh, fear, uh, we might use a different term, we might say awe or respect. You have shown strength with your arm. You have scattered the proud in their conceit. You have deposed the mighty from their thrones and raised the the lowly to high places. You have filled the hungry with good things while you've sent the rich away empty. You have come to aid the aid of Israel, your servant, mindful of your mercy, the promise made to our ancestors, Sarah and Abraham and their descendants forever. I mean, this song, you have to think about this. We don't imagine Mary as, you know, in her 20s. Imagine Mary, because of what we know culturally, Mary would have probably been around the age of 13, somewhere in that ballpark. She's a kid, but the song she sings is fierce. She rejoices in an opportunity to join God in a complete transformation of the world. I mean, that's what she's talking about. It's no, it really is no wonder that her son would go up to talk about the last or first and the first or last, that there's this reversal, that those who have been left out and marginalized are going to be brought to the table. Right? Because when his mother finds out she's pregnant, this joyous song bursts from her. And she celebrates her invitation into the process of changing the world. This song is a challenge to the status quo. It is a cry for justice and equity. Yet Mary's situation, again, wasn't a piece of cake. She doesn't sing from a place of privilege. She's she's in a vulnerable spot as a young, pregnant, unmarried woman from the peasant class in the context of Roman oppression. This isn't ideal. I love how John Dominic Crossan describes this in his biography of Jesus. He says, if you were in the peasant class like Mary, um, like Mary would have been, life is hard. You are continually reminded of where you belong in the scheme of things. You aren't at the top, so you don't really matter. And this isn't new for the Jewish people. They were slaves in Egypt. They were subjected to one empire's boot after another, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greek, and now Rome. Talk about having the hope and joy beaten out of you, literally. I mean, this is where Mary finds herself. And yet her joy overflows because she sees what we might say is a bigger picture. And she understands that she's participating in something that could possibly transform the world into a more just and equitable place. And so in that moment, she makes space for that joy. She makes space to celebrate. No, she's not celebrating that everything's fixed, that everything's... We still can't celebrate that yet. We've made some strides in places, but it feels like sometimes it's two steps forward and 10 steps back. And yet in this moment, even though everything's not been put right, even though the hungry haven't been filled with good things, Even though there is no equity and justice on earth, she makes space for the joy of possibility. And there's no guilt there. There, there, There's no, gosh, I really shouldn't celebrate. No, no, Mary celebrates. I I think we should also know that joy and happiness aren't the same thing. Um, Happiness is notoriously fickle. Um, Depending on how things are going in the moment, our happiness can fluctuate. Joy, it's something deeper. It, 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 right? like it doesn't fluctuate based on circumstance or whims. Joy is something deeper. Joy is like the baseline. Joy is more like a conviction that in spite of thing, how things may seem to be, this whole thing actually could go somewhere good. And giving ourselves permission to be present to joy, however joy chooses to come to us and invite us into it, making space for that is part of living a life grounded in gratitude. Listen to these words from uh, Mary Oliver, who I just oh, I love so much. Uh, in her poem called, Don't Hesitate. If you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate, give in to it. There are plenty of lives and whole towns destroyed are about to be. We are not wise and not very often kind and much can never be redeemed. Still life has some possibility left. Perhaps this is its way of fighting back that sometimes something happens better than all the riches or power in the world. It could be anything, but very likely you notice it in the instant when love begins. Anyway, that's often the case. Anyway, whatever it is, don't be afraid of its plenty. Joy is not made to be a crumb. I love that last line. Joy is not made to be a crumb. When it finds its way to us, when we feel surprised, uh, invited by joy, the grateful thing to do is just to give in to joy in that moment, knowing that there's still a lot of work to do. And there are going to be all sorts of other moments that aren't like this. But in this moment, it's okay to celebrate. It's okay to have a moment of joy. So joy and guilt, joy now and fear. One of the opposites of joy is fear. Um, If we go back to Luke 2 again and notice the interaction between the angels and the shepherds, I think it's interesting. Shepherds were living in the fields nearby, guarding their sheep at night. The Lord's angel stood before them, the Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said, don't be afraid. I bring good news, wonderful, joyous news for all people. There's something about that. The angel appears, the messenger appears, announces good news, and the shepherd's immediate response is to be terrified. In the King James Version I grew up with, uh, the language was they were sore afraid. And I always used to read it when I was a kid as sore and afraid, Um, but sore afraid. This is throughout the scriptures. Often when you see these messengers of God pop up, people immediately sort of panic Because it's is you know if God if God's going to talk to me is if God has a message for me it can't be good right I mean that's sort of the image we get like if God has something it's almost like when you get a letter in the mail from the IRS right you don't automatically assume this is going to be good Um, so these angels they, they show up these messengers and the shepherds are terrified and they invite them away from fear and in to joy I think fear is what often keeps us from being able to experience joy fear and joy are both about possibility. They just exist at different poles. Fear imagines all the things that could go wrong and makes the assumption that they will. For example, when you, when you get a group of people in a room and their fears get stoked, what happens? The response isn't joy. No matter how much they're chanting, and no matter how much they're shouting, what's happening in that room isn't joy. It has been, you've been taken over by fear. And so what you often hear in response to fear is hate, contempt, or any number of other fear-induced responses. But it's not joy Right, because sometimes joy isn't found in the loud and in the clappy and in the the ch- sometimes joy is in stillness. Sometimes joy meets us. Um, I, I love in some of the later stories of Luke when he talks about um, Mary um, after Jesus' birth and how she she treasured these moments in her heart. There's something about like joy can even find us in that way. But when you get people in the room, you stoke their fear. You're not bringing out joy. You're actually in, in, inducing all sorts of other uh, emotions that actually make the world worse. On the other hand, when you gather people and you instill hope and you pursue justice, joy can begin to bubble up and surprise us in all sorts of unexpected ways and unexpected situations, and even at times through unexpected people. There's this, there's this old joke, and, and uh, I can't figure, I can't find out who, who was the first to tell it, seems to be around 100 years old but i think it really it really um, illustrates this well so there are two um, two brothers on christmas one is a pessimist one is an optimist the parents decided they were going to conduct a little experiment to see how each of their, their sons responded and so on christmas morning they decided to take both boys christmas wish list and they wrapped them in, wrapped them up and put the pessimistic brother's name on all of them and there was nothing there under the tree for the optimist brother And so when they come downstairs on Christmas morning, they they see what's going on. And the pessimist brother comes over and he begins to open his gifts. And instead of excitement, he immediately begins to complain. And as he opens each gift, he laments how jealous people are going to be or how these toys will eventually break or how if he rides the bike, he could break his arm or his leg. All the while the optimist brother is sitting over watching this, getting more and more excited by the moment. After all, he thought, My parents, my present for my parents must be so great that they couldn't fit it under the tree. It must be so incredibly cool. And so his parents then say to him, after the other brother has opened every gift that they both wanted and complained about all of them, they say to the other, the optimist brother, do you want your gift now? And he is, of course, he's ready. He's about to explode with anticipation. They lead him outside to reveal the gift, a large pile of of fertilizer, when the Optimus brother saw the large pile of fertilizer, he got so excited. His parents said, "Do you know what that is?" He said, "I sure do." With all that fertilizer, there must be a pony around here somewhere. Now that is a corny dad joke, but I really do think it illustrates this this point: that that joy and fear operate um, on, on the same energy, right? The energy of possibility. The difference is joy isn't trying to to invite us into a uh, a naive rose-colored glasses sort of view of the world. Joy actually shows up and is aware that there are real problems in the world and insists that all of it matters and that it's all heading somewhere and that somewhere is full of hope. Joy has eyes wide open and still insists that everything is headed somewhere and that somewhere is full of hope. Joy and fear, joy and guilt, and now joy and grief. Embracing joy does not preclude suffering and grief. It doesn't, you, being a joyous person, you, that doesn't get you out of it. The human life will be touched by by suffering and grief. Joy is not a kind of fake happiness that tries to minimize the pain of the world or the pain in our own lives. And we are trained in so many ways. If you grew up in a Christian context, you were probably trained to do this, that to Um, to to express the grief you feel even at the loss of someone you love, that somehow if you're really faithful, you're just happy that they're in a better place. Uh, And we were not really, at least in my context, we weren't really taught to grieve well, because something about grief almost makes it seem like you're not faithful. And and this is an approach, I think, that, that really fails to allow us to feel our feelings. And the danger in that is our feelings don't just go away. They don't evaporate. You can't put them under the... Our feelings have to be felt. Because if we don't, we internalize them in our brains and in our bodies and in unhealthy ways that keep us from the healing process. Grief is about a process. And that process is central to becoming a fully integrated, whole human being. Listen to how New Testament writer Paul describes his own experience he doesn't do it in a dualistic binary. He doesn't do it in sort of this, well, this or that. Notice what he says in 2 Corinthians. He opens his arms wide in an everything belongs kind of way. He says, we are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, <clears throat> labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, Kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech speech, in the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left in honor and dishonor in ill repute and good repute. We are treated as impostors and are true, as unknown and still known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. He goes through this list of all the ways things have gone wrong, all the way that people have thought that they're up to no good, all the way, all, all sort of the, the negative and the criticism and the suffering. He goes through the list, and yet at the, at the end, he's got this like, yes, yeah, sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Yes, as poor, and yet somehow sharing riches with everyone we meet, having nothing, and yet we have everything. It's one of my favorite parts, selections out of Paul's writing. I love those last couple of lines. Joy isn't a false happiness, but an eyes wide open conviction that we are headed somewhere better than where we've been. And of course, that's not a guarantee. That's why joy is so deeply grounded in hope. Joy is a conviction that grief and pain must be engaged and not ignored, but done so through the lens of hope. In that way, joy actually becomes a form of resistance to pessimism and cynicism, because once we fall into that, and it's really, really easy to get sort of fall into pessimism and cynicism. Uh, I can find myself there on plenty of days, where we just sort of see see the world and just everything's falling apart, and there's a lot of things falling apart. Everything's awful. Everything. There are a lot of things that are awful right now. But joy shows up and says, "Look." I have hope. And if if we do this together, history, the world, our lives can move somewhere more hopeful than where we are right now. Joy comes not to cover up the pain and grief, but to help us move through them in a healthy way. I I love this from Frederick Buehner. The grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been but because you are, because the party wouldn't be complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. I read that again. The grace of God means something like this. Here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us perhaps maybe the place joy becomes most accessible to us is in knowing and trusting in our own belovedness maybe that's where joy begins that we don't enter the world with anything to prove that we don't enter the world having to earn anything that we don't enter the world separate from god who is angry with us from the moment we draw a breath because we're sinners That the moment we draw our first breath, we are breathing in our belovedness. And the moment we let our last breath go, we are sharing that and passing that belovedness on to others. And every moment in between, we are safe and embraced by the love and care of God. Maybe that's where joy can begin. If we're going to depend on our circumstances for joy, we're we're in some dire straits these days. We're in some pretty tough waters. And the reality is, as we've talked about before, we're all all not in the same boat. Not everybody's experienced this pandemic in the same way, but we are all in the same storm. And perhaps if we can come back to center, to trust that we really are beloved children of God, and that every moment of our existence, that is true, you can't be like uh, do more good things and get more of that or bad things and you lose it. right? It doesn't matter how many successes or failures that you've experienced in your life. It doesn't matter how many times you've dropped the ball, missed the mark, whatever. This, this belovedness is not contingent. It is your truest self, even when you don't believe it. What if we were begin to seek that place and to access joy? Maybe it's not in the celebration, maybe, maybe it's not all loud and bright. Maybe, maybe it's a joy that just says, you are loved. Nothing can separate you from that love. And as you move into the world, no matter what is coming at you, that truest person, that truest self, that's, that's who you are. And perhaps when we want to talk about unspeakable joy, maybe that's what that is. A joy so deep and so profound that it leaves us uh, grasping. For, you ever been one of those moments where something has been so profound and life changing that you're looking for language and it's it's like the words don't appear. Maybe that's what joy. Maybe that's the gift of joy that it meets us to remind us that hey, the truth is the party wouldn't have been the same without you. And yes. The world will bring beautiful things and terrible things. And yet somehow, all of those beautiful and terrible things you will experience safe in the arms of love.